Hello, and welcome to another episode of the 10th and L podcast, brought to you by True North Church in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Philip Coleman, and I am coming to you solo today. That's right. Today is episode number 17, which is our question and answer episode round two. We did this back at episode three or four. I can't remember exactly when. And had a really good time taking questions from you, our listeners. Most of you are church members here at True North, and uh, it's been really fun to to receive questions in the last couple of months from you. Uh, we've got a pretty good compilation set up, so that's what we're going to do today. It'll just be me. I'll remind you, if you're just tuning in, that last week I had the opportunity to sit down and interview Megan Howes, who is our world-class kids director here at True North. And Megan and I talked through the first five chapters or so of a book called Show Them Jesus by Jack Klumpenhauer. This is a book that our church is going through right now, our volunteers who work with our kids, as well as some of our parents who are interested in getting to know the future of our philosophy and kids ministry. So take some time, go back and listen to that episode, especially if you plan to be with us for our first roundtable discussion, which is coming up. So again, today we're going to have a mailbag episode. This is a place where some in person, some submitted via Connect Card on a Sunday morning, most submitted via email. Uh, You guys have sent in your questions, and so I'm going to make my way through those Uh, Pretty rapid fire today. Looking at my notes, I've got four pretty big questions to get through. So I'm going to do my best to make it through at least three of them. Question number three is a pretty heavy hitter that I think you'll find very interesting once we get to that point. But the first two questions today deal with our study, our journey through the book of Exodus. And so regarding the book of Exodus, this is a, a podcast listener who emailed in. She said, thinking through Exodus and the plagues, specifically the fifth plague in which all of the livestock in Egypt died, the sixth plague in which God sent boils on people and animals, and the seventh plague, which was comprised of hail that fell from the sky and also seemed to kill some of the animals. Here's her question. Does all, quote unquote, all of the animals in plague five, which is the livestock death plague, does that really mean all if there are still animals left over for the hail to kill in plague seven? So that's a great question. I think in order to interact with the language, I need to read it to you. So I'm going to read from Exodus 9, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, so that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go, if you still hold them, then behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, all of the herds and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the livestock of Israel, excuse me, the people of Israel shall die. Verse five. So the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. This is verse six. Listen to this language really closely. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of the Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people go. So to be clear first, in Hebrew, the word all in verse 6, what I just read to you, all the livestock of the Egyptians died. It's emphatic, very clear. It's written that way on purpose, and it's supposed to stand um, within the literary, literary structure of this passage. It stands in direct comparison to the words... Uh, that, that make up not one in reference to the Israelite livestock. So the idea is everything the Egyptians had is gone versus not anything that belonged to the Israelites is damaged. And there's supposed to be a strong comparison juxtaposition there. 
So the question of how all the animals could die, yet there are animals dying again, just two plagues, which is likely between eight weeks and six months later. It's a really good question. So if we believe the Bible is true, then there has to be an explanation to this. And I believe that the fifth plague only affected animals that were out in fields and did not affect animals that that were living in barns. And so the word all in verse six is applied to all of the animals that are in the field. In fact, if you go back, if you have a Bible or I'll read it to you, if you can listen to or look at verse three of Exodus nine again, God says this, he says, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon, listen to this, your livestock that are in the field. And then he lists what those animals are. So from my perspective, that's significant for him to say the Lord will do this only on the livestock that are in the field. To me, that has significance. I don't think the Bible's ever specific like that on accident. The number of hands, the number of generations of people that these stories have had to pass through to get to you and I, and for God to still preserve that detail, to me, seems to seems to mean that God wanted that detail preserved, that that has significance. And so it also fits, though I think that's probably enough of an explanation because the Bible says it that way and therefore we can understand it to mean that. It also fits what we know of the ancient Egyptian agricultural philosophy of the day. Um, late in the year, as the Nile flooding would recede, so we're talking maybe the end of December, farmers would put their livestock back out to pasture in January on into the beginning of February. However, if you think this through, this makes sense, right? The waters of the Nile River receded gradually because this Nile River receives all of the watershed from all of Egypt. And so it takes a long, long time for the water to drain down from the hills and the mountains and out of all the desert sands, down through the tributaries, into the Nile, hit the delta, and then go out to the ocean. And the gradient level between the highest point in the Nile and the ocean in which to, into which it empties is not significant, so the water doesn't flow that fast in the Nile. I mean, if it's flooding, it does, but just in the normal course of the life of the river, it doesn't flow fast enough that it would quickly, quickly drain. And so the farmers would stagger. They would phase in their livestock over a period of time until all of them were back out in the pasture. And so that would mean that if the initial fifth plague, which killed the livestock in the fields, arrived early in maybe January, there would still be some livestock, particularly younger animals, back still kept in the barns that would then be put out in the fields in time to be affected by the boils and the sixth plague and the hail that fell in plague seven. Question two, what is the timeline of the 10 plagues? So this one's a little easier based on the seasonal markers of the description of the plagues. So Uh, Things like the rotation of the crops when we get to um, the hail and then the locusts that come in the plague after that. Uh, We understand that based on the way that those were planted and harvested, we can get a general idea of what months those things happened in. And then connected back to what's going on with the Nile River flooding and the livestock themselves, what I just explained. Uh, It's very likely that all of the events from Exodus 7 through Exodus 12 happened across 12 months, across about a year. And that's generally what most scholars accept. There's no way to know for sure. It's worth noting that when God speaks to Aaron and Moses in Exodus 12 about how to order the new people that he's built, this new nation known as Israel, he communicates immediately that the Passover will mark the beginning of a brand new cycle of time. And so because that happened, even the calendar that we have that we can trace back to ancient Egypt by way of the Israelites is not in sync with the Egyptian calendar sufficient to give us total clarity. But from my perspective, I've read enough commentaries that agree, and there seems to be enough historical evidence and understanding of the uh, crop patterns and the agricultural calendar of Egypt that I think we can say with general confidence 
that it took about a year. So that was a good question too. Okay, question three. Uh, this comes from a listener who has heard us interact at times with the idea of purity culture. It's also something that I've mentioned before from stage at True North in the course of communicating about certain idols and how those things become idols, how sex is an idol, how uh, our sense of family can be an idol, and the damage that purity culture can do to our mindset around what sex is, the role that it plays, God's intentions for it. So here's the question. It comes with a relatively healthy, I'll say, explanation, which I think is good. I appreciate the context, but bear with me. We'll get to the question at the end, and then I'm going to take my time trying to answer as best I can. I will say at this point in the podcast, we don't typically do this, but if you are listening with your kids, um, I'm not going to get explicit into any kind of act, but we are going to interact with what purity culture deals with. Uh, sex, namely, and if that's not something that you're comfortable hearing your or having your kids around for as we interact, I just want to make sure you have plenty of fair warning uh, to be able to go a different direction, listen to something else today, and then maybe catch up on the podcast when it's just grown-ups around. Okay, let's jump in. So the writer says that wrote this question, I grew up in the age of rampant purity culture, and I would just say, so did I. I have lots of memories of true love weights, uh, purity rings, what were called promise rings at one time that people gave to each other that was like a pre-engagement situation. Um, Obviously, even engagement is somewhat of a cultural concept in the West, so we can't necessarily say that those things are wrong just because they're not in the Bible. But I think by looking at the side effects, we can say that if they should be employed, it should be very carefully and probably pretty differently than the way it was, at least when I was growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s. Anyway, I'll let the reader continue to speak for themselves. Or excuse me, the writer, she says, within my own home, Like many homes within my generation, if sex was discussed, it was chased with a strong sense of shame. That there was fire and brimstone regarding your eternal damnation if you were to engage in any sexual activity prior to marriage. We never discussed the natural temptations that my siblings and I experienced as we came of age, and it was understood by the time that I was 12 that sex was essentially Bad. So right there, I'm going to just stop for a second and say, that's probably the most significant side effect, the most significant negative side effect of purity culture is I believe it's shame-based, and I'm going to speak to this, but I think it's shame-based, and I believe that it communicates to a child, even if it doesn't say it explicitly, that sex is bad, or it's wrong, or it's embarrassing, or it's uh, a secret. Uh, I even think purity culture has played a, a role in somewhat preparing young people to be taken advantage of sexually because there's such a stigma around what they can and can't talk about that even to be a victim of sexual abuse to them, it would be better to just keep that quiet and let that fester inside themselves than to deal with the shame of having had a sexual encounter, even if it happened against their will. So let's let the writer finish here. I knew it was permissible within the confines of marriage, talking about sex, but most of the conversation was about scaring my siblings and myself into avoiding sex at all costs, lest we burn in hell forever away from Jesus. All that to say, and here comes the question, how do I reconcile my mind that has a tendency to want to parent as I was parented in this way, while also acknowledging the flaws in purity culture and trying to meet my children where they are, while also showing them the beauty of a life in Christ? The writer says, I want to see I want them to see that obedience serves a beautiful purpose in their relationship to God. Do you have any scripture or any advice to help me walk through this as a parent? And my answer is yes. So before we jump into the full meat, I know I've somewhat commented on this already, 
Uh, that's just the way that I am. Uh, so sorry. <laughs> um, I want to make sure we know what we mean when we say purity culture. So to be really specific, purity culture to me came on the heels of the sort of apocalyptic movement in evangelical churches in the 70s and 80s. And so if you are 50 years old or older, you probably remember when kind of out of nowhere, the evangelical church became very concerned about the end times, about the end of days, the last days. And so evangelicals began to tap into these um, fictional narratives. Uh, the most famous one would be the Left Behind series, Jerry B. Jenkins, Tim LaHaye. Uh, and in encountering the stories that were told, which were trying to explain one of the three most common perspectives on the end of times, uh, those three perspectives are postmillennial, premillennial, and amillennial, and then post and premillennial both have some kind of variances to them. Um, but the, the premillennial idea is what shows up in Left Behind. It's prominent in evangelical churches. Um, if you grew up in an evangelical church, you probably remember that there was at some point a Bible study somewhere on your church campus dealing with the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation. Probably a lot of people called it Revelations, which drives me crazy. Uh, so you can come up and say that to me sometime and that'll let me know that you're listening to the podcast. Um, but it was an obsession with trying to figure out the end of things so that we could time how far away we were from that and then encourage the people around us, as is often the focus of evangelicalism, to repent and believe and be saved. Now, I don't think it's ever wrong to want the people around you to have eternal life with Jesus at all. But I do think that that motivation alone does not necessarily create pure actions or steps that would lead into a genuine encounter with Jesus. And so evangelicalism goes through and deals with this obsession with the apocalyptic, which somewhat puts the squeeze on people regarding what is or is not sin and how bad those sins can be and how uh, desperately wicked people are to the point that they will be separated from God for eternity. And then all those people that kind of grew up in that in the 70s and 80s had kids. And their kids are born in the 90s. And then those kids grow up in a youth group culture that's been influenced by what happened with this obsession with the apocalyptic such that we start reading into the lives of our teenagers this idea, this sense that if they are not abstinent, they'll ruin their lives. Now, another caveat here. I'm 30 years old. I'll be 31 in a couple of weeks. It's important to me that teenagers and young people understand that uniquely sex has consequences. Compared to other sins, I'm not saying God sees them differently, but the physical ramifications of sexual errors, especially when those errors cross the boundaries of other people's rights. I'm talking about sex crimes here. Those things have lifelong ramifications that will follow you forever. So should we make that clear to our kids? I think so. However, we have to be careful that we don't read into Christianity, that we don't read into God's word, a practical, pragmatic standard that we believe. We should be able to present to our children this has serious consequences. You should be careful. You need to be very wise about who and when and where and why. Let's just say that to them as wisdom. Let's wrap that back into some of the Proverbs that deal with the way a wisdom, a wise person is, is shrewd and careful and makes decisions. But when it comes to putting a particular emphasis on sex outside of marriage in a way that seems to amplify or exaggerate its significance in eternity, I don't think that's good or right, and I've not seen it even be effective. So I'll speak to the, the, the question that our sister wrote in and asked, okay? So she wants to know, what do we do as a parent? Here's what I'll say. If you want your kids to see Jesus, then I think he's all you need to talk about. In any given setting, if you are most concerned with glorifying, exemplifying, explaining, introducing Christ, Jesus is not a small part of the Bible. 
His words, his works are not just a couple verses that we have to then extrapolate out what it means to follow him. He speaks often. There's four books that deal with his teaching, his perspective, his ideas. And I would encourage you to dig and tap into those. How does Jesus interact with people who are sexually impure? What does he do to restore a person who's made mistakes, potentially even willingly, that are now following them into adulthood? And do those things actually prevent Jesus from accessing their soul and healing them? Or are they categorically just a different kind of sin that Jesus can still reach, can still touch, and can still heal? Jesus can forgive anything. I believe that. Jesus also values a person's body enough that I think some of the narratives our culture is dealing with around boundaries are right in the wheelhouse of Christianity. So if we're talking to a young woman about how to have boundaries, about how to tell her boyfriend no, I would be very comfortable saying to a young lady, Jesus has valued your body enough that you can tell your boyfriend no because he's behind that no. He helps you with that no. Not because he's going to hurt you if you don't say no, but because the pressure of a hormonal 14-year-old young man is not sufficient to override the authority of the Jesus who gave his life for you. Again, we don't want to create a guilt response here, but we do want to appeal to the idea that the love of Christ values us, adds value, increases our own perspective of what we are worth, such that Again, the hormonal advances of a younger person maybe become smaller. Maybe, maybe not. I would also remind our children that Jesus redeems and saves us and even restores people who are wickedly selfish. Jesus isn't just here to help generally good people get better. He is here to seek and save the worst of us, and that includes wicked, selfish teenagers. And, and more important than anything else, Jesus can give you back everything that you give away by choosing to have premarital sex. The lie of purity culture is that, yes, Jesus can still save you, but that to some degree, there's some unknown, unspoken damage that will never go away in your life. Famously, I heard a pastor tell a story once of a speaker at a college-age event back in probably 2003 who uh, had a rose on stage with him, and he handed it into the audience, and he told everybody that all these teenagers are, maybe they're 20-somethings in college, sitting on the floor in a big group, and he said, I want you to pass the rose around. I want you to feel the stem, feel the thorns, feel the leaves, feel the petals. And so he's, he's talking the whole time. He's talking, talking, talking. He's talking about sex. He's talking about purity. He's talking about obedience. And by the time he's done, the rose has made its way back up to the stage. And so he's like, hey, where's that rose? Where's that rose? Somebody hands it up to him, and I think it has maybe one petal hanging on. The stem is broken. Like, it's a lot shorter than it used to be because there's just pieces of it that got torn off as it was passed around. No leaves, no thorns. And then he holds up a rose that he's had, I guess, backstage or in a vase or something. And he's, he's comparing the two. And he asks the audience this question. This is so purity culture. He holds up the damaged rose, and he says, who wants this rose? Who out here would ever want this? Given the choice between this rose that has not been damaged and felt up and hurt, and this rose that you know looks like it obviously does and is covered in dirt and grime and broken. And his objective opinion was that the perspective of humanity, which I think unanimously would be we want the unbroken, clean rose that's in good shape, is sufficient evidence that God feels the same way that you better not have sex outside of marriage. Because his idea was we are like that rose. When we sleep with other people, when we give our bodies away, when we give our virginity, our our access to our, our genitals, our private parts, our, our sexual orgasm, all those very personal things, when we give those away to another person, we become used and abused and broken and dirty. And the perspective of the pastor who's telling the story was that that all makes sense until Jesus arrives. And I think he's right because Jesus has made it clear in scripture that he wants both roses. 
in whatever condition they're in. He's come to seek and save the lost, not to seek and save those who are almost found, but those who are far from himself. So what I'll say is we need to be very careful that that's not the message that we're telling, that we're not warning our children when you make mistakes, Christian people or the God of Christianity or the church or all the nice middle-class people around you are going to reject you and you're going to be miserable. And so what that does is it doesn't actually prevent the mistake, in my experience. It prevents exposure of the mistake. It It prevents confession. It prevents repentance in a way that could be really meaningful for a child. So what I can say is, I can promise you that if your goal is not, excuse me, if your goal is to convince your kids to not have sex, if that's what you're trying to do, you're tempted that way, uh, you won't actually do that. I don't think as a parent, unless you threaten to kill them, at which point we probably need to talk about your parenting, you don't really have control of your kids. I think if your kids are old enough for you to have this conversation, you've probably already learned that lesson, but that sense of futility can be really disabling. What you can do is you can lead by example and you can communicate in your own life at the right time when it's appropriate your own experiences with sex, your own experiences with redemption, your experiences with Jesus. Um, I think that you can probably appeal to your authority in their life to a certain degree. It's always right to tell your kids to do the right thing. But if you're trying to force them not to, if you want to be able to go to bed at night with a self-guarantee, a thought, oh, my kid would never do that, that's going to be naivety in your life. That's going to be sort of an ignorance is bliss until it's not ignorance anymore and your kid comes home pregnant or having gotten somebody else pregnant or, God forbid, you even find out after the fact that an abortion has happened. So to me, your student, if you have a teenager, they already think they know better than you probably. They may be nice to you, but if you're over 20 years old, you're already kind of culturally irrelevant to them and you, you just can't compete in the same way when it comes to trying to force them to do the right thing. But, and here's the but, it's a big one, hear this. If you speak into the lives that they are already choosing to engage with in secret or online or behind your back by calling them to repentance, by calling them to love for the Jesus who can give them so much more than their boyfriends and girlfriends, then you're going to tell them a story that they aren't hearing anywhere else. One of the great appeals of Jesus is he's so disruptive. He's so countercultural. And so if what we try to do is make Jesus into just another abstinence program, he's not effective at that. That was not his objective. He didn't come to do that. But if we can hold him up as the healer and the valuer and the lover of our souls, the side effects of being known and loved unconditionally like that typically turn into greater self-confidence, a greater understanding of self, a greater sense of boundary. Those are very important things that don't come from us yelling at our kids, don't do that or else. I believe they come just as they do in our adult lives from knowing Christ, beholding him, being near to him, being in community. So let me give you an example here and and be more specific. If I were to get invited to speak to a group of teenagers about purity, which maybe won't ever happen after this podcast, I don't know, my plan would be to hijack all the time that I was given by trying to convince those students that they are valuable to Jesus no matter what they do with their bodies. I think I can probably trust that most of the adults in their life are already telling them, don't do wrong things, don't do wrong things. Now, yes, I believe it does grieve Jesus to see teenagers make sex transactional. I believe it grieves God for anybody to make sex cheap, but that's not because he's mean and it's not because he's old fashioned and it's not because he's easily offended. It grieves Christ because when a person cheapens and sells themselves, essentially their soul, when they give sex to a person who won't or can't commit to them for life, it's breaking. That's a breaking experience. Whether our culture would label that as abusive or not, I'm not saying it should be prosecuted as a crime at all, but in God's economy, 
for someone to take something from you that's that significant, even if you offer it to them, but then be unwilling to back it up with the commitment of marriage, that is a breaking experience. Whether you want it to be or not, it's painful, it's damaging, it leaves scars. Jesus loves people too much to ignore that reality. So if you're getting ready to talk to your child about sex, which if I can give you just a little plug here in parenting, uh, that conversation really needs to happen before sixth grade. Like at the absolute latest, it's got to happen the summer between fifth and sixth grade. I'll tell you, in our house, we use anatomy words. We say vagina. We say penis. We, we don't, we're not drawing pictures of those things or showing pictures of them to our six-year-old, but we're teaching her to speak about those things correctly. Uh, we're trying to help her understand the boundaries around those things as far as who has access, who can see, who can touch, those kinds of things. Most all of that is nobody ever does any of that stuff to her. But it's important to us to begin to build in a correct anatomical understanding because if we don't do it, parents, if you've not ever thought about this before, this will be helpful to you in any controversial conversation with your child. Whoever teaches your child about something at first, they get to lay the groundwork. And then every other conversation after that is your child either proving or disproving their basic assumption, which is going to come out of their first conversation. So the danger of waiting until the world has told your kid about sex, the danger of waiting until your son comes home from soccer practice and says, what's a condom, is even if he's asking you, he already thinks he knows. Whoever it is that introduced him to that concept has given him a baseline understanding. And now all you can hope to do is step into the courtroom of his mind and argue against his his assumptions, which is much, much harder to do than to be the one with the authority to carefully introduce that concept to your child. And I'll say one of the benefits of life group is to pull another adult in on that conversation or even another couple. Do it in a setting where it's not just one-on-one. I think a lot of parents freak out about that. God willing, that's not the culture of our church, but we're humans, so probably some of us are still feeling that that burden and that weight. But bring another, if if it's a son and you're a dad, bring another dad in and, and you guys rap about it or a couple dads and you guys just own it. Own that it's awkward, own that it's funny, get the giggles out and then talk man to man about how this thing works, what it is, what it's for, what it's not for, who should see it, who should touch it, those kind of things. But what I'll say is if you're going to go down the road of doing that sex talk, let's redeem that sex talk a little bit. And instead of just making it about anatomy or physical actions or pleasure or hair or whatever the big emphasis point is you want to make about the change coming into your child's life anatomically, let's make it about Jesus and his perspective on what can and can't separate a person from him forever. Because I would recommend that you go to Luke 7. I would recommend that you explain that the woman in Luke 7, I just preached on this recently under the title of hospitality, if you want to hear my perspective on it. This lady's a sex worker. Her whole career is about attention and passion and sex. She is living whatever your teenager's sex dream is. She's living the life. She gets to have sex. She gets paid for it. It's fun. She has all kinds of experiences, people with all different shapes of bodies, all different dimensions of genitalia. It's very possible she's with men and women in her culture, kind of in a covert way. She's probably done anything and everything your child would be interested in doing. Yet what is her experience after she gets everything she can from literally every kind of wild sexual encounter, she still finds Jesus and she still gives away everything she has to get him. So that's a story we can use to teach with some authority in the lives of our kids. We don't have to have had wild escapades. We don't have to have grown up in the sexual revolution to be able to tell our kids, hey, I tried it all and trust me, Jesus is better. We can point to a woman in the Bible who's very real, whose sex work lifestyle, her inundation with her own sexuality has led her to a place of brokenness. And when she meets Jesus, she'll give it all up to get him. That's how much better Jesus is than the fleeting pleasure of any sex, including really bad teenage sex. And when we find Jesus, we follow him. 
And following him, I believe, fixes our purity problem. That's the right order of operations. I think it has to happen in that order. If you are trying to convince an unregenerated, unrepentant, unbelieving, unfollowing teenager to treat the Jesus they already don't care about as if he has some kind of authority over their sexuality, you're not going to get anywhere. It's just not going to happen. But if you can connect them to a life-giving, loving Jesus who has sacrificially given up literally heaven, literally eternity, to be a man, to suffer, to die, to give us life in his place, to take our death in our place, to give us eternity of pleasure, of joy forever, I think that's a lot more appealing. And I don't actually, and this might be the hottest take that I have on the subject, I don't actually think that purity is a physical condition. Um, And this would be my biggest beef with purity culture. I don't think that sexual purity is a physical condition. I don't think sexual purity can come about as a result of legalism or of self-righteousness. And I think that if it did, even if the preservation of one's physical virginity were to come as a result of legalism or self-righteousness, though I think that virginity has some value or else it wouldn't be our default starting position, I don't think maintaining that virginity has any significant spiritual impact in God's kingdom if it comes out of a heart of legalism or if it comes out of a heart of self-righteousness. It may be physical purity, but if it comes from spiritual impurity, I think that's much more important to God. And so I want to finish today by reading Malachi 1, 10 through 12 to you. Um, I believe that physical purity that comes from a place of not righteousness in the heart is a sort of false offering. God's speaking to his people in Malachi. He says this in Malachi 1, verse 10. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors of the temple that you might no longer kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you, you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that is, its food may be despised. In other words, God is saying to his people, I will be praised, and frankly, your offering can kind of come or go. I, I can live with it or without it, but I have no pleasure in it because your heart is not in it, because you don't care to do it my way. And I think when we impress upon our children that God will sort of accept any version of our own righteousness as long as we're really trying hard, we are teaching them a kind of worship that is not pleasing to God. I believe the heart is the starting point of worship. I believe it's the most important aspect. And I think that right actions will follow a right heart. Our responsibility as adults is to try to cultivate a right heart. And I said that was my final thought, but it's not. I want to say one more thing to you. Um, Baked into purity culture is the concept of modesty. And I'm going to just say this, and this is probably also going to be unpopular with some people. Um, modesty is not not in the sense that we think of it. It's not in the Bible. It's not a concept that's taught or reinforced. Now, I'm sure some of you are immediately thinking, 1 Peter 3, 1 Timothy 2. Okay, okay, we're going to go there, and I'm just going to let this be where we land the plan on this question. But in the context of purity culture, you'll hear 1 Peter 3, 3 and 1 Timothy 2, 9 quoted. I'll read them to you now. 1 Timothy 3, 3 says this. Let not yours be the outward adorning with braiding of hair, with decoration of gold, or with wearing of fine clothing. Now, first of all, nobody takes this verse literally, so don't try to pull that card in the purity concept. It doesn't work. This is, this is broad instruction to the gathered church on how women ought not to come to church trying to attract attention to themselves. And you could argue that that includes sexual attention, and I agree with that. 
But what it's not describing is modest is hottest or this sort of hyper modesty where only a woman's like fingertips and eyeballs are showing. That's not what this is describing. Same thing in First Timothy 2.9. Paul says women should adorn themselves modestly, sensibly, in seemly apparel, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but they should adorn themselves with good deeds as befits women who profess religion. Now, again, if we take this literally, you could argue literally that Paul is saying take off all your jewelry and don't even wear clothes, just wear good deeds, which would be far from modest. What he's saying is the word adorn, which is the active word in both of these verses, 1 Peter 3.3 3 and 1 Timothy 2.9, is when you adorn yourself, it's the way you present yourself. Your presentation is more than just your clothes. It's more than just your physical aspects. It's your presence. So when you present your presence, be a person, ladies, who presents yourself in a way that represents your relationship with Jesus, that he was humble, so you are humble, that he was giving, so you are giving, that he was others-oriented, so you are others-oriented, even in the way that you dress. That's what those verses are getting at. They're not trying to convince 12-year-olds not to wear spaghetti straps. I rest my case. All right, last question. Looks like we are going to have time for this. This comes from another uh, listener to the podcast who wrote us in. This is also a topic that's going to dabble a bit in sexuality. And so I would just continue the caveat that I gave earlier, the sort of fine print. If you've got kids hanging around, this is not going to go anywhere. We haven't already gone, uh, but I do want to warn you, don't call them back in because we finished the last question. If they needed to miss the last one, you probably want them to miss the discussion on this one too. All right, here's the question. What is your stance on our church's position on supporting Christians who are practicing sin or who are adopting sin into their lifestyle, unrepentant, yet still claiming to be or wanting to be Christians. Okay, there's a lot of qualifying questions after that one. I want to start with that one quickly. So let's break it into pieces. What is your stance on our church's position? Well, I would say our church's position as elders, who really are the only body that kind of govern over the way we deal with sin, is that sin is sin. It's rebellion against God. And therefore, when a Christian practices sin willingly, regularly, or chooses to adopt sin into their lifestyle, from the elder's perspective, that becomes an issue of church discipline. And church discipline is not angry, it's not abusive, it's not overbearing, it's not exercising power to make an elder feel good. It's the process of reconciliation. The objective of all church discipline is to pull people back into covenant, really meaningful membership. So that's what I would just say there. Our position on any sin is the same. If it's unrepentant, then it gets addressed by one, according to Matthew 18. If that person goes and speaks to the unrepentant and they're still unrepentant, then two people go the next time. If that doesn't work, then the elders have to get involved. If at that point the person has said, basically, I don't want your authority, I don't want to be a part of this church, if that's what it means, typically that's how it goes, and they break covenant. But if not, if they say, I want to be a part of this church and you can't get rid of me, at that point we have to make it the church's business as members. And because we are a congregationally ruled uh, congregation, we're elder-led, but our members ultimately decide what we do and how we do it. Um, Though it would be very awkward and painful, we would bring something like that before the membership. We would go into scripture. Our elders would certainly speak and advise, but we would get one vote each, just like the rest of the members, and we would decide together what we want to do. And then wrapped into that would be the responsibility of deacons to be caring for that person if they were open to that, walking with them, maintaining relationship. We would just have to close off the Lord's Supper to them, as well as any position of leadership or active um, participation in the church outside of continuing to participate in worship. They would be welcome to do that, sit under the preaching, attend life group, absolutely. But we would want to limit that person's influence until they found their spirit to be back in step with the Spirit of Christ. 
Okay, so the person, the writer goes on and clarifies. They get a little more narrow on their view, so I want to get more narrow on my response. Specifically, says the writer, what do we do about people who are practicing sexual sin but still claim Christ? And then the writer clarifies and says, obviously, I'm thinking a heavy hitter here is homosexuality among Christians. So homosexuality is controversial in a way that's kind of surprising to me because the Bible is very clear. Um, For the sake of time, we won't get all into the scriptures here, but maybe this is a good topic for us to double back on uh, in a later episode and just just isolate the concept of homosexuality, the Bible's perspective on that. Um, There's been a lot of misinformation, I think, out there, especially on the internet, about that the Bible never actually calls out homosexuality and that that's not what Jesus meant when he was talking about marriage. Um, and that's just not, if you read the Bible um, in its own languages, that is exactly what's going on, is the Bible does have language. I'll just speak specifically the Apostle Paul, when he deals with sexual immorality, um, he uses a word, and I don't want to be overly crass here, but it's Paul wrote it, so it's in the Bible. He uses a word to describe the nature of the relationships between men and men, what we would call a gay relationship, Um, And he basically clarifies that he's talking about older men and younger men sleeping together in a way that the older man takes on, how do I say this without being tacky, the older man takes on both intimately and relationally the role of the masculine partner in a heterosexual relationship, whereas the younger man takes on the physical, intimate, emotional, relational responsibilities of the feminine in a more uh, normative heterosexual relationship. And so in ancient Greek, there's a word for that. I mean, it's that specific where we're talking about two dudes doing certain things a certain way, and that's what Paul is talking about. So the Bible does speak against that. We have to be careful that we don't try to use that as a proof text to weaponize our conversation or our relationship with people who may be dealing with sexual sin. Um, the, the writer says, you know, they have a friend who shared 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with them in order to support an argument against having any kind of relationship with a person who both claims Christ and does any kind of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, slander, drunkenness, swindlers, the list goes on in uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Um, the writer says, to take this question a step further, if getting married is an act of worship, now this is a hot button t- topic, but I'm excited to talk about it with you guys, and two people of the same gender are getting married, if this is worship to God who ordained and created marriage, where do you personally stand on attending the wedding? How would you counsel your church on the matter? And if one of the people getting married is a Christian, is our attendance at their wedding somehow condoning their sin, their union? How would you recommend navigating these relationships? So sort of an onion of a question here, some layers, uh, some different directions we could go. I think it's important to just read to you 1 Corinthians 5. If you're like me, you're probably listening to this in the car or your hands are full. And so um, I want to read it to you quickly. Paul says this. He says, It's reported to me that there is immorality among you and a kind that is not found even among pagans. For there is a man at the church in Corinth who is living with his father's wife and living with implies that they're sleeping together. And you are arrogant about it. Ought you not rather to mourn this? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So there's some grounds there for taking a person out of community uh, in the short term to deal with the issue. Paul says, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present with you, I have already pronounced judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the man who has done such a thing. It's interesting that he says that because he's saying, I'm not even waiting for you guys to judge this. I judged it from here. It's done. You just need to act on it. He says, when you are assembled and my spirit is present with you, 
with the power of our Lord Jesus, you must deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, stop protecting this guy from his own actions and let him deal with the consequences because he is in sin and the universe, though broken by sin, still somewhat functions the way God intended, there will be significant, serious, physical ramifications for this lifestyle. Let him deal with that, and by God's grace, the pain that he deals with will wake him up, he'll come back, and his spirit will return to Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened now. For Christ, who is our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now I want to make it clear here, Paul begins to enter into dealing with the idea of Passover as a meal. I know he doesn't call it out explicitly, but he's talking about unleavened bread and he's talking about a Passover lamb. And then he says, therefore celebrate the festival. I believe the festival he's referencing is the Passover, which would be, in our modern context, the Lord's Supper. So he goes on to say, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral men, not at all meaning the immoral people of the world, the greedy, the robbers, the idolaters, because then you would need to go out of the world if you were to do that. But rather, verse 11, this is the verse that our writer referenced, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of immorality or greed, or if he is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a robber not even to eat with such a one. Now, I want to stop there. Not even to eat with such a one, to me, falls in the context of the Lord's Supper. I believe Paul is talking about the festival of Passover. I believe he's talking about unleavened bread. I believe he's talking about the Passover lamb for context. You could argue that you're never supposed to eat any meals with such a one, but I think in the context of the New Testament church, anytime they would gather to eat, it was itself representative of what we now call communion or the Lord's Supper. That was not an event a sacrament like we treat it like it is now. It happened every time the church gathered. And so to Paul, he's saying, don't willingly participate in the sort of blind, ignorant, I don't know, going through the motions of this person being saved when obviously his lifestyle doesn't line up at all, even a little bit. Now here he says in verse 12, what what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he quotes, drive out the wicked person from among you. So, I'll try to answer these questions in the order that they're written, and I know we're bumping up against our time limit here, but I'm going to go maybe 10 minutes long just to try to do a good job with my answer, Um, and if that's too long for you, you can turn me off, and I'll talk to you next week. But for those still tuned in, um, my response would be this in this order. First, from the perspective of continuing to associate on any level with a person who is willingly practicing sexual sin but still claiming to live for Christ, I would say. If that person is truly claiming to live for Christ, then baked into that understanding of living for Christ is meaningful local church membership. And therefore, that person has elders in their life, God willing, biblically equipped and called elders who've aspired to that office, who've worked hard to get there, and who hold their shepherding of the flock in a very high um in a very high way, that they understand it's really, really important that they're going to give an account according to the book of Hebrews for the way that they interact with their people. And therefore, I would say this is not probably the business of the average Christian to put themselves in the role of disciplinarian in the life of another believer, the exception being a parent to their child who still lives in their home. Okay, so that's number one, is this is probably the elder's business as far as what happens. Regarding 1 Corinthians 5.11, from my perspective, we're dealing with what you and I would call the Lord's Supper today, and I would agree that we do withhold the Lord's Supper from any person who's not repentant and following Jesus. 
And that goes for people who have never trusted Christ and and don't want to be in the family yet. We ask them anytime we do communion to abstain. The same would be true for a person who has willingly embraced sin. And I think people who take these verses seriously will probably self-police on this front. But again, if a person is under church discipline, part of church discipline would be communicating, you are not welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper. We're not going to bum rush you in the aisle if you choose to do it in defiance, but it's just going to become another thing you're going to have to repent of down the road. So (laughs) think about it that way. Now, as far as my personal stance on attending a homosexual wedding, I don't want this to sound like a cop-out, but the first thing I would say is there is no one blanket rule that would be effective here. Not at all. Every wedding is different. Every wedding represents different things. Um, I have been uh, near homosexual weddings that were themselves basically the same as a heterosexual wedding. They just involved two people of the same gender, same sex, who were sexually attracted to each other. Do I think that's right? No. Do I think that God blesses that marriage? No, I don't think so. I don't think that any of the blessings or privileges or rights from a spiritual standpoint should ever be expected of that marriage. I think that it's going to be a train wreck, unfortunately. Um, And I'm not saying those people can't be nice to each other and can't find ways to serve each other, but the spiritual union that is the core of Christian marriage is impossible between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. And I believe that Jesus said that. I believe it's in Genesis. I just don't think yeah, I don't, I've never seen anything in the Bible contrary to that, and I know it's not popular, but that's my perspective. But would I go to a wedding like that? If I had a meaningful relationship with one of those people, and I felt, I sensed that there was going to be meaningful opportunity, whether at the wedding itself or in the future in that marriage, to provide biblical counsel, to provide testimony, witness, love, support, a call for repentance, then yeah, I would probably go and I would sit in a chair And I wouldn't clap and I wouldn't be exuberant about it. But frankly, if those guys are having a good day and I'm able to approach them at the reception and say, hey, I love both of you so much and I appreciate that you wanted me to be a part of something special in your life, all of that is true. All of that, I believe, honors them and gives them a chance to see me as a friend without ever requiring me to to comment on their sexuality. Now, the other end of the spectrum is, and this is unfortunately more and more common in my experience, is at times a gay wedding, a lesbian wedding, or some other version of sexualities that have found each other that are not a heterosexual man and woman who are heteronormative. Anyways, something else that's more modern or progressive, it's not always just a wedding. It's typically also sort of a celebration of that sexuality, and this is where we have to be very careful. Because if it's a thinly veiled philosophical orgy, where everybody there is not just celebrating the bride and the bride or the groom and the groom or whatever words they want to use for themselves, but they're celebrating the idea of homosexuality, the freedom and the rights of people to do whatever sexually deficient thing they want to do, I would be a lot more cautious about that. Now, at the same time, picture yourself at the reception. You're sitting at a table. There's assigned seats. It's you and your spouse. It's two other couples. Maybe both of the couples are are homosexual couples that are there because that's the nature of the wedding. You might have some opportunities at that table to tell a different story than that homosexuality is the most fulfilling choice a person can make. And I'm not saying you come to the table, you both pull your Bibles out, and you start reading 1 Corinthians 5.11 out loud over these people. That's not my tactic. But wouldn't it be meaningful to speak to another person at the reception about how, yes, you are a friend to the bride and groom, you want to be present for them, you want to be a help to them, but you see them as so much more than their sexuality. 
That's a challenging concept. That's a thing that a person who's embraced sexuality as the foundation of their identity probably is not prepared to interact with. And I'm not saying you need to go to be a destabilizing presence, but you have a chance to talk about other stuff. You have a chance to say, like I, for me, for instance, I would say, man, I let's say one of the guy's names is Chris who got married and he's a friend of mine. I don't know. I'm making this up. I would say to anybody at the reception, man, I'm so excited to continue to be in Chris's life. I'm so glad I get to be around for the highs and the lows. And I just, man, I, I hope that Chris always knows that no matter what happens, I'll be there for him. And I see him, I see his personhood as so much more than just his sexuality. Man, he's such a great thinker. He's a dreamer. He's caring. He's loving. I want to be able to call out those things and just communicate a different narrative that seeing these people through the lens of their own sexuality is not the only way to interact with them. And if we do only interact with them by way of their sexuality, even if we are verbally or even vehemently communicating that they're bringing damnation on themselves, that they're wrong, that it's an abomination to God, in a way, if that is the only conversation we are having, we will only further reinforce that they are right to think of themselves primarily or totally as just their own sexuality. So we have a responsibility to talk about other things, to bring other things into the conversation, to be holistic, whole people who have a little more to say than you guys better not sleep together. I can promise you, even in 2021, anybody who's engaged in a ceremony like that has heard that at least one time. If you have the chance to say it lovingly, carefully, if they come to you six months down the road and they're like hating each other and wanting a divorce and questioning all kinds of stuff, in that period of destabilization, you'll be able to offer a narrative that's better, that's more strong, that's more reliable, that will actually help them. But on the day of their wedding, everybody's shields are up. Everybody's going to do everything they can to keep you, the bigoted Christian, in their eyes from ruining the special day. So I think you have an opportunity to be careful, to be close by, uh, to be willing. I think that that's different from sharing communion with a person who claims Christ yet is still living in sin. And I think that for me, the issue really does boil down to whether or not we've condoned the sin. And I, I would say I don't think you and I condone any sin until we've actually condoned it. Like, in other words, if your position is known by these people, by this couple that you don't agree, that you don't think it's right, that it's not your jam, and they still invite you, I don't think you really have a chance of compromising your faith. I don't think by coming to their wedding, they're going to go, oh, Philip must have really changed his theological position. And if they think that and they ask you, all you have to say is no. And then you'll surprise them. They'll go, wait, you thought this, you think this is wrong and you still came? and you didn't pick it outside the wedding, and you didn't scream Bible verses at people angrily, again, you will show them and teach them and speak a better and different way. And you have to ask yourself, what is your presence going to present? What is it going to represent at this wedding? What questions can you ask? Are you able to speak into the lives of these people what is true? Can you support those people because they're human beings and they bear the image of God without having to say, I think your gay marriage is awesome? Can you appreciate them outside of their sexual identity while still very carefully and gently speaking against the idea that anybody can be distilled down to their sexuality alone? So that's the way that I would do it. I don't think that attendance at the wedding is condoning their union. I think your worship is between your heart and God. And I think, again, we have to be so careful, and this calls back to the purity culture conversation, that we don't, we don't dumb down our relationship with Jesus into just the actions that we take. Our heart is and has always been the most important. And you and I can have a clean heart and live in a wicked place among wicked people. 
and we can willingly, lovingly be near those people and refuse to bow down to their gods. I, I cannot think of a wedding in which anybody ever forced me to bow my head and pray ever. Maybe, I mean, the ones I officiated, I guess I had to do that or that would have been pretty awkward, but like no, nobody at a homosexual wedding from my experience is probably going to become militant with you. In fact, they're going to wait for you to become militant. That's their expectation of you. And simply by being a person of peace, by being close by, by being loving, Offer to pray for these guys. I mean, try to build a relationship. See if you can get these gay guys to go to coffee with you and your spouse sometime. Have them over to your house, man. Love on them. Spend time with them. I can promise you they're not going to be the only homosexual couple your kids ever encounter. So if you're afraid of having homosexuality in your home, that's a battle you're already going to lose. What a great way to embrace two human beings, love on them, hold a hard line with your kids, coach them before and after the conversation, pray like crazy for their souls, and be present and close by when their lives fall apart. Because every single person who tries to live without Jesus eventually self-destructs. And the shame on Western Christianity is that we have built so many walls that keep us from being close enough to help when that happens. So that would be my goal. That's my intention. Again, as a church, our position on this as elders would be sin is sin. Sin in the life of a Christian calls for uh, discipline. Discipline is a tool of repentance. Repentance leads to reconciliation. That's the path. Me personally, I would say we don't have a policy on whether a member of our church should go to a gay wedding or not. I would probably attend seven out of 10 times, depending on the setting, being very careful that everybody understands who I am and what I'm there to do, but being the presence of Jesus, which is loving, careful, and calling out, not somebody who's there to pick a fight and uh, and sling uh, mud in the name of morality. So hope this has been a help to you. Uh, thanks for sticking with me if you have this long. I know we're running about 15 minutes over. Um, next week on episode 18, I'll have a chance to sit down with Ian Johannes again. It'll be our third episode together. And we're going to talk about deacons, deacons at True North Church, deacons and the idea of serving the Lord's table, of, of taking care of the gathering of Christians, which in early Christian history was so oriented around the table. And so what does that have to do with the role of deacons and how do they play that role? And we're going to talk a little bit about the standards for that at our church. Who are the deacons? What do they do? Where do they come from? Why do we need them? As always, church, you can submit any questions, comments, or concerns, or if you want to argue with any of the points I've made today, I know we've gone into more controversial waters than we have in the past, you're welcome to do that. Uh, Happy to hear from you, happy to read your responses on the air in the next mailbag episode and interact with these ideas again. Uh, You can do that at info, I-N-F-O, at truenorthalaska.com. If you'll use the subject line podcast questions, that will help me uh, get to those questions sooner and make sure I can find them at the right time. We love you, church. We are here for you, and we hope that this has been an encouragement. We'll see you soon.